the very first chapter of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, we would love to give you one as a gift today. There should be a black Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take that today as our gift. We're going to be opening to the first few pages there to Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Scriptures. Our second week in our study of the true story of the world, Genesis 1 through 11, the primeval history, the history of the world as presented to us in this beautiful, theological, complete, and perfect rendering that God has given us. And so we pick up in verse 3 and see the creation days, the six days of God's creation. Starting verse 3, let's read together. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation and plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures, according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. This is the word of the Lord. When I was like five or six years old, this is actually one of my earliest memories uh, ever. I was watching this TV show 
And I remember this scene, even though I don't remember anything else about it. I don't remember what the show was. Um, it was something on Nickelodeon or uh, something. It wasn't an animated show. It was a, a real-life TV show and some kind of sitcom with a laugh track and a com comedy family, something like Boy Meets World or something like that. And I was watching this show, and I don't remember anything about the episode or what show it was or anything else, except I remember this scene where this kid, um, roughly my age at the time, was making prank calls. And uh, kids, if you don't know what a prank call is, we used to have telephones in our house, and they would hang in the kitchen or uh, somewhere else, and people could call each other at home. And sometimes, if you had somebody's number, or if you just dialed in a random number, then you could find someone and play a joke on them by calling them. That's a prank call. And so, uh, this kid was doing that, and it was, of course, a funny situation, and he decided that he would call his friend's mother, and so he called her on the phone, and he pretended that he was a game show host, and he told her that he had, she had been selected to participate, he had his best uh, you know, game show host kid voice that he could, you've been selected to participate in our one question to win it all challenge, grand prize of $100,000, and the lady on the other side starts to get excited, and um, he says, all you have to do is answer one question correctly. And she says, he says, are you ready? And she says that she is, and he asked his one question. And this is what I remember. He says, how many miles are in the world? And he starts a little countdown with his voice. And at the end of the countdown, he says, are you, do you have your answer? And she's, of course, struggling on the other end to understand or to answer that question. She, says, she just guesses, two billion. And he says, I'm sorry, the correct answer is two billion and one. And he hangs up the phone. That's one of my earliest memories in life, that little scene. Why? What, why did that stick with me? I've been thinking about that this week. And I, it has to do with that question. How many miles are in the world? That stayed with me. Now, I knew even then that the whole point of it wasn't to get to an exact answer. It was to be silly and to create this funny situation, and I knew that, but I still couldn't shake that question, how many miles in the world? Something about that troubled me. Now, I was five or six years old. I hadn't yet taken a geometry class to know that that question actually doesn't make any sense. That's what was troubling me. Even though I didn't know the answer to that, it troubled me. Why doesn't it make sense? Because the, the world isn't measured in miles. There's an infinite number of miles in the world because a mile can start at any point. And there's an infinite number of spaces between points. So you could measure that however you wanted to. The world is not measured in miles. That's linear, I came to, to understand. There's surface area. There's, there's different ways of measuring the world. And yet... Even though I didn't understand that, it troubled me. The question that I had troubled me. Come to realize later, as I studied that, why it troubled me. And I put my faith in something called geometry, as most of us have. It's a good system for understanding how to measure the world. It has rules. It has reality to it that we accept and maybe there is somebody out there who quibbles with the reality of geometry I'm sure there has been but for the most of us we accept that as true and understand our questions in light of that reality and in light of that reality the question that I had 
that troubled me was proven to be absurd. It didn't make sense within the reality. There are realities that we believe in and there are questions that we ask. And the realities are often things that are under the surface, presuppositions that we have, things that we've come to believe about the world. And then our questions are the things that tend to dominate us. When we come to a passage like Genesis 1, the small task of describing the creation of the whole world, 24, 23 verses that we read here, six days that God gives us of His creation, we have so many questions that come to mind. We wonder things like how long were these days and how does this make sense with the science worldview that I've come to understand or that at least a lot of smart people say they believe in and what, how does it make sense with this being the only true account or these other accounts that are true of old, older creation stories. Um, and we have all kinds of questions And the questions are good. The questions are something that we're going to talk about today in a brief fashion in the second part of today. Questions are good. It's more than okay. It is desirable to have questions about the truth. But questions like how many miles in the world have to be questioned themselves, don't they? Where do they come from? Why do I want to understand this? Am I sure that I have the picture of reality enough to even be able to ask this question? Because it's true that while questions are good, given time, given a proper understanding of reality, some questions do become unimportant or even absurd. It certainly has happened in my life. The things that I struggle with or wondered about the most has dissolved almost into no tension at all because of a reality that I come to discover. And so I think it best for us to come to the Genesis chapter 1 and first ask, what is the realities? What are the baseline realities that God wants to give us about Himself and about the world that we believe in and trust as realities and from which we ask our questions? So I want to challenge us to believe in God's realities concerning creation first, and then to ask our questions from a place of trust. Questions are good, but they come in second. So we'll talk about those two things. First, God's reality. Secondly, our questions, and see how the two relate. First, God's reality. There are things that we need to trust and believe in in this passage. And I can summarize these six days of creation with three words, three realities, order, dominion, and blessing. Order, dominion, and blessing. Number one, order. I mentioned this last week. What God does in creation is he creates order out of chaos. And I told you what that chaos looked like. The earth, in verse two, was formless and void. A very fun phrase to say in Hebrew. Tohu, Vavohu, tohu vavohu, formless, void, formless and void. And what the creation does, the creation of the world in six days, is it addresses those two bits of chaos. The first three days of creation address formless, tohu. The second three days address vohu, void, emptiness. 
God forms the earth first, and then he fills it, thus reversing the chaos. You see on the chart up here that these are the six days of creation, and the first three are forming days. God forms the basic outline, the light and the darkness first. Big separation. The first three days are about separation. Light and darkness, sky and sea, and then sea and land. These forms are the first three days, and then there are parallel days. Beginning in day four, God begins to fill what he has already formed. So in day one, he makes light and darkness. But in day four, he fills the darkness with luminaries, stars, moon, sun. He makes the sky and the sea a great separation. And then he fills those skies and sea. Sky with birds and the sea with fish. And then he makes a vegetated land, one with trees already in it, though he doesn't make the trees for food, which comes later on the sixth day, but he makes the land full of vegetation. He forms the basic crust of the earth and uh, habitat, you might say. And in that habitat, he fills it with animals and then with human beings, the pinnacle of his creation on the sixth day. Now, what we often find interesting about the world is the makeup of the world on an atomic level or a sub, uh, subatomic level or what we can see. What makes up things is something that we in modern day have been obsessed with. That is not what drove the biblical writers or the ancient people. What drove them was where do things belong? And so what God gives us here is the belonging of things. Birds belong in the sky. Fish belong in the sea. Sun and moon belong in the heavens and we belong on the land with the animals. It's a place of order that God created. Everything has its place. And it's so fascinating to see how even in the creation story itself, the seven days, the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, there is an order that is followed and a beautiful, perfect picture of order. I'm not one who often spends a lot of time thinking about numbers in the Bible, connecting numbers of different books and that kind of thing. There is a whole study of that uh, that sometimes can be pretty extreme and unhelpful, I think. But it is undeniable that looking at this passage, we see the perfection of God's words to us. The seven days of the beginning match the seven first words of the chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Seven words and the seven days that follow. In fact, in the next sentence has 14 words and the multiples of seven continue. The three big points in the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, heavens, earth. Each one of those exists in the first, passage, the first chapter of, of the Scriptures in multiples of seven. Thirty-five times God's name is used. A multiple of seven. And heaven and earth are both used 21 times. When we get to the seventh day, the seventh day where God rests, there are three sentences that describe the seventh day, and each of those three sentences in Hebrew are seven words. And out of those 21 words that describe rest, the middle words, the very middle, if you go to the middle, are the words, the seventh day. It is amazing 
when you look at it on this level. The picture of order in the chapter itself becomes the picture of the whole world. It is the way that God wants it to be. It's not chaotic. It's His place. He orders it. That's the first thing that we believe in, that we must trust in. Order. Two. Dominion. Dominion. We tend to think that this chapter of the Scripture and other stories kind of emerged out of nowhere. Um, that these things are so ancient that we can't have access to what it was like to write them for the first time. But of course, we believe, like the Bible attests in several places, that the book of Genesis was written by Moses much later in the story of Israel, in the time of the Exodus. And when Moses wrote this, carried along by the Holy Spirit, we believe these are God's words, he could not have written such a perfect account otherwise but through what Moses was trying to do writing this to the people as they exodus out of Egypt is to show them once again where they come from and to show them ultimately the dominion of God over other gods and if we look closely at the verses that we've read we see that God is not only ordering things he is showing himself to be without rival in the world he has dominion Throughout, there's a subtle way of doing this. The things that God creates are very close to the words of the gods or the forces of nature in other cultures and religions. And here God is shown as one who is over them all, simply creating them. Let me give you a couple of examples. In the Babylonian creation story, which is called the Enuma Elish, uh, there is a figure, Tiamat, the goddess of the sea. And in that story, she is divided in half by an arrow shot by, by Marduk, I believe, the other god. And so the arrow goes through and she is divided. And her top part becomes the heavens and the lower part becomes the seas. And so there's this huge clash of a warring gods in this passage of the Enuma Elish. But here, God using some of the same words, the Tiam, the, the deep, he says, I just divided it. I divided the heavens and the earth. Simple. There was no big clash. There was no warfare. I just divided the seas. Look at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. There's several words in there that come up in other stories and other understandings of the creation of the world. The signs and the seasons are forces or almost deities in Sumerian um, literature. They are these forces that fight for uh, control. And here they're just described as neutral. Just There's some things that I did. I created um, seasons and signs. And, and of course, the greater and the lesser light. That's talking about the sun and the moon. But in Egyptian culture, the sun and the moon are gods, as in others. And so here, even though there is a word for in Hebrew for sun and moon, he says greater light and lesser light saying, I just made a big light and a small light. They weren't rivals to me. They weren't fighting for anything. I just made them. One more example. 
Verse 21, God created the great sea creatures or the sea monsters, we could translate, in the Canaanite stories. The sea monsters were the ones who fought Baal. Baal was victorious over them, but they fought and he almost lost. And here God just says, you know, I just created these big creatures. It's very straightforward. It's very, um, it's God is in control. He has dominion. There is no rival to Him. He has dominion over this creation. The third word that we could use to describe the reality of creation is blessing. And there's one more group of seven in this passage. Seven times in the first six days, the phrase is used, it was good. The first six, five days, it's used once, and on the sixth day, it was good about the animals, and it was very good about human beings, which we will talk about next week. And so we need to see that God not only gave his whole creation order, He not only put the whole of creation under His dominion, but finally He gave all of creation His benediction. Which just means good word. He calls it good. God likes His stuff. He blesses it. He likes us most of all. We are good. The world is good. These three things are the reality that we believe in about the creation. And in fact, what they tell us is in very simple terms what it means to be part of God's created order. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to live on this place where God has made everything? That surely should mean something. Well, it means this. It means to be a full human being. You believe in the order of God. You believe that everything is of His hand. You see His works. You see everything in the world and you trust that it is of God's design. So you believe in His order. You bow to His dominion. It means you submit your life to Him. You give your life to serving Him and to understanding Him and walking with Him. And that's the best way to be a human being because you were literally created for it to believe in His order, to bow to His dominion, and then to enjoy His blessings. To delight in what He has made, what He has called good, we call good. It's not just an order and a dominion. It is a joy to be a creature of God and to see everything that He has made. And in Christ, this even just comes into clearer perspective because we're told in John 1 that The Word was with God when created. That Jesus Christ was with God. Colossians tells us that in Christ everything was created and all things are held together where this person, Jesus Christ, fulfills everything that every reality that God creates. This order that He was a part of creating and yet when we follow after Him and give our lives to Him, we fall into that created order again. And when He, the one who had dominion, gives up that dominion and comes and submits to the Father, we learn what it means to submit and give our lives to the Father. And we see this this man who enjoyed the blessings of God. We can enjoy 
his blessings as well to see this is what we were made for. So I said, there's reality and there's our questions. The reality that we're being called to believe in is the reality of this God. And any understanding of our world, any scientific understanding, any questions we might ask, any opinions we have, any thoughts, any conclusions, any philosophy must be superseded by this. As I said last week, the book of Genesis is, does not begin with an argument. It begins with a given. And we either give our lives to the given or we don't. Believe in this reality and then out of that we ask our questions. There's an old story, I may have said it here before, of two men who were uh, on a bench, both of them reading. One was reading a Bible and one was reading a newspaper. And as they were sitting there in the quiet, suddenly the man with the Bible said, Glory, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And the man with the newspaper said, what are you so excited about? And uh, he said, well, I've just been reading in the book of Exodus, and I just read about how God parted the Red Sea, and uh, the people walked through on dry land. Glory, hallelujah. And the newspaper man folded the newspaper, and he looked at him and said, I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but um, I'm a scientist, and I've studied such things, and we have soil samples and all this stuff, and based on the research, there's just no way that the Red Sea was any higher than two inches at the time. Well, the Bible man didn't know what to say to that. He didn't have a response, so he just went back to reading. And after a few minutes uh, of silence, he screams out again, Glory! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! And the man with the newspaper looked annoyed, and he said, What are you so excited about? I just told you it was only two inches of water. And the man said, I know, I've just read about how God drowned the entire Egyptian army in only two inches of water. You see, presuppositions come in. And we're going to talk about science and faith and all these things in just a moment, but presuppositions come in. What is our goal? What is a starting place? Their starting place rooted in something that is uncertain. And we come and submit ourselves to Genesis 1 first. Before we come with our questions, which may be proven to be absurd or even unimportant. Maybe even though they're very real to us, we come first with recognition that this is what God has done. He's created an order. He's created a dominion and He's given it His blessing. And we submit to that. Then we ask our questions out of a place of trust. Now let's talk with our few remaining minutes here about our questions. Four of them I'm just going to mention to us briefly this morning, just enough to infuriate you and make you have even more questions. Here's a big one that in some ways is the closest to the question, how many miles are in the world? In the sense, it doesn't make sense, but it's something that many of us have wrestled with. Do science and faith conflict with one another? Are these two things at odds? And if so, what should have the priority? And the answer to that, of course, is that they are different things and that they ultimately operate in different realms and they have different goals. And so wherever the tension is between those two things, most of it can be solved by us naming our presuppositions, the things that we are bringing to the table. And Christians should have, I'll speak to Christians first who believe the scriptures and who want to prioritize that, the Christians should have the presupposition that science can teach us many amazing things about God's world. We should have 
the approach that it is a beautiful and amazing thing to understand God's world and any pursuit of it should be blessed and should be encouraged to the extent that it shows us the world that God has created and doesn't deviate from that. There are two kinds of revelation. We believe there is special revelation and there is general revelation. Special revelation is what we call the Scriptures. God's special word to us. But God also shows us that He reveals Himself in many ways. He's in the still small voice. He's in the power of creation. He is, he is in the heavens. He shows Himself everywhere. Such that even, even just a knowledge, as Romans 1 tells us, of creation leads us to God or a rejection of Him. And so, whatever we can learn about God through the world, we learn and we enjoy and enthusiastically accept we should be so enthusiastic about the study of God's world. We should have our kids become scientists and get them to be, encourage them to look at these things. That's on the Christian side. For those who are not coming from a Christian worldview, who maybe have a scientific uh, worldview or a what we call a philosophical materialism. We talked about that last week a little bit. Those who believe that all, everything that is is, a ma- is matter, energy existing in space and time. That, that basically everything that is can be studied. It can be understood. It can be quantified. Those who have that position also have to be honest about their presuppositions. That those presuppositions are not in fact scientific. They are philosophical. I remember the day that I was in Barnes and Noble a number of years ago, and this was during the time when uh, we had all these new atheists uh, books. If you remember that movement, it's kind of died out a little bit, but there was all these books about how uh, religion was not just something you should reject, it's actually an evil on the world, and it's horrible. And so we had Richard Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens and some other guys like that who wrote books, very angry books, and presumed to have a scientific background for, for that, especially Richard Dawkins. And I'm realizing one day as I'm in Barnes & Noble and I'm looking at these, the spines of these books in front of me that I'm in the philosophy section. just kind of came to me. The science section was on the other side of the store. This was next to world religions and Christianity. And that's exactly where it should have been. Because these things were not scientific in nature, they were philosophical. Let me read to you the first words of Carl Sagan's book, Cosmos. Any of you know him? He's a famous materialist. Died a number of years ago. Uh, But he had this series, this TV series called Cosmos, and uh, books that came out, and everybody was uh, wild about it. But here are the first words of Cosmos. The cosmos is all there is, or has been, or will be. Now just look at that statement for a minute. The cosmos is all there is or has been or will be. That is not a scientific statement. That's almost like it belongs at the beginning of Genesis or another similar book, right? This is not something that Carl Sagan has studied. He's never studied all there is or all there has been or all there will be. There's no way that he could. Nothing wrong with making philosophical claims as long as we recognize that that's what they are. And we don't mix up that that tension between the things that are observed and the things that are predicted or 
derived from philosophy. Most scientists have a very narrow field of study. If they study insects, they study insects. If they study virus, they study virus. There are some, of course, who study theoretical matters like the origins of universes or the movement of planets. And to whatever extent we can, we just accept and we believe and we, we listen to those. But we recognize that everybody starts with presuppositions. Everyone starts with something that they're believing in as reality first and then asks questions, whether they're scientific or practical, from that place. A second question that we will not do justice to today. What is the length of creation days? This is one that many of you have asked about. How long are these days, these six days that God creates? And of course, what's behind that is a desire to understand the age of the earth and the the science that we have and the uh, discoveries that we made and the perception of the majority of uh, intelligentsia and others who believe that um, the earth is much older than what the scriptures would portray. And what we need to see, first of all, is that there are two main camps, and there's lots of little camps within those camps. And this is true in the evangelical world. It's not those that are outside the faith. Within our own denomination, there are many perspectives that people may take and become pastors in this denomination. But the two main camps are those who would see this, un- understand the, the six days presented here as solar days, 24-hour periods. And then on the other side, the other big camp is those who would say, we don't know, that it's an indefinite amount of time. And within those camps, there are many little camps. But what we need to see, first of all, is that the creation days are not a test for orthodoxy. What do I mean by that? This is not something that we should defend as, um, as the only right way to understand something to the extent that other people who don't have our opinion are therefore not Christians. If that's the case, then many in our tradition who I'd rather not throw out <laughs> would be out of bounds on either side, in either camp. I'm going to mention a few names here. It's okay if you don't know them. Um, these are you know, old dead guys for the most part and some modern guys. Uh, actually, I think they're all, they've all passed away that, now that I read it. So this is some guys in our tradition, that diversity of opinion, those who believe that the, the Genesis account gives us 24-hour periods of time, solar days, would be John Calvin, Louis Burkhoff, great systematician, and then later in his life and up to the modern time, R.C. Sproul, and someone that I know has influenced many of you in this room. Uh, interestingly, most of R.C. Sproul's life, he was not a six-day creationist, but later in his life, he became one. Then we switch to the other side, those who say this doesn't present a definite period of time. It's an indefinite period of time. We have St. Augustine in our tradition. We have some of the guys from Princeton, Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, and then much into, later, into our time, Francis Schaeffer. So godly people who have been defending the Scriptures, who understand it as God's Word and seek to live underneath it, have disagreed on this. It's not a test of orthodoxy. The main questions that come up with this is, what is the day that is being described here? When it says the first day, the second day, does this mean a 24-hour period? It doesn't mean that in the rest of the Bible. And the answer to that question is almost always yes. 
Almost always it does refer to the 24-hour period, but sometimes it doesn't. The day of the Lord, for instance, is a construction, a poetic construction to say the time period of something. We also wonder about, and many have asked me, what about the fourth day? How could there be three days before the fourth day when the sun was created on the fourth day? The first three days we have light and darkness, the light of God himself, and then on the fourth day he creates the sun. And so in what sense could we call the day a solar day or a 24-hour period if the sun was not created? Also, people point to the seventh day, which has no beginning or ending. The other days say there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day. On the seventh day, there is no evening and morning. There is just the seventh day and it never ends, which is something that the author of Hebrews picks up, uh, whoever that was, and he makes the argument that the seventh day never ceases. It's, the, it's actually the Sabbath rest of God's people. And so there is even a theological reason to believe that those day, that day was not a period of time in the sense that we see it. Those who would believe that this is a 24-hour period um, also believe things like that the earth is older in appearance than it actually is in reality, or that so that God made it that way with, with that appearance, or that the flood somehow did something to our uh, atmosphere or our world that would change that. And you know, it's very clear in the scriptures to that point that things do change and people live less long and these types of things after the flood. On the other side, the indefinite time period, those who have uh, believed that this doesn't tell us a 24-hour period, but doesn't tell us how long it is, there are many theories within that, many of them within orthodox views. You have the gap theory. I'll just mention these to you briefly. Just look them up if you want to learn more. The gap theory, which is that Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 have a gap between them. In Genesis 1-1, there is the creation of the world or the, the, the heavens. And in, during this time period, there's a gap. And in that gap, there are things like the fall of Satan and other things that happen in the scriptures that seem to be kind of outside of time. And so there's a gap and the things happen during that time. And then after the gap is over, presumably when the earth also is more aged, then there is the creation of the world out of that. So there's the gap theory. There is the day-age theory which is that each of these days represents an age, an age period of time, an epoch. And it's just a way of understanding it. They calls it a day, but it is, in fact, an age. Most of the time, folks are trying to line this up with uh, an evolutionary understanding of origins. However, the problem with that is that the, the, the ages and the supposed uh, origins, evolutionary origins don't match up exactly. So you have an awkwardness there. There's the framework hypothesis, which says that these days are not really days at all anyway. They are a theological framework where we understand God's order. And so the days were not sequential and they were not days at all really. It's just a poetic way of, of describing the things that Moses wanted us to understand about God. That is the position that R.C. Sproul held until he became a six-day creationist later in life. Lastly, there is the analogical day where the emphasis is on 
These are the days of creation. It's probably the closest to the six-day creationist. These are the days of creation. However, they are God's days and not our days. Our days, our 24-hour days, are an analog. They are a representation that we are trying to live out our week and our day of rest in the same way that God does. But God still did create the world, and he created it in this order that is given to us here. It's just that he took however long he wanted to, and we live our days analogously to that. The question on all these things is not exactly what you jump to or believe in right away, what you can study. The question is, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to discount something? Are you trying to understand something? Are you taking your life under the authority of the Scriptures? Are you taking its words seriously? We come with some understanding of God's reality and then we ask our questions out of that. So which one do I hold to? I know you probably want to know. Um, I have held different positions at different times and I'm open to changing in the future as well. There are good arguments in all of these things. But I find myself most likely in the analogical day camp where I believe that this is what God's word tells us, that these days happened in the order that they happened. They were God's days. And our days are an analog to that. That is what I think is best at the moment. But these are our questions. Who knows what will prove that to be foolish or absurd. But I know this, these things about God's creation His order, His dominion, and His blessing are the source and substance of my life. And living under in the world that He created is a great joy. And so at the end of the day, that is the most important thing. A third question, let's move quickly here. What is the genre of Genesis? People wonder. What do we have here? Is this a historical book? Is it a poetic book? Is it a mythical book? Is it a composite book? of stories that have emerged over time that have been put into place and therefore if more like fiction but maybe fiction with a ring of truth to it what can we say here the first thing to say is this the bible is not myth it's not fiction c.s lewis remarked once that whenever someone tells him that portions of the bible are myth he wonders not what the person's bible credentials are he wonders more about what their credentials are in myths because that was his field. He'd studied so many of them, and he said the Bible is completely different, and I agree. How does the re- Here's the key question. How does the rest of the Scriptures understand the creation story? Did they understand it as something that was mythical, or did they understand it as something that happened? Even if what happened was poetic or shorthanded in some ways in the Scripture, did they understand it as things that actually happened? And when we look at Moses, Jonah, Isaiah, the author of Hebrews, John in the book of Revelation, all of them refer to creation as things that happened, Adam and Eve as real people who lived, and the generations as real generations of God's people. Is it poetry or is it narrative? Let's call it poetic narrative, just to be a cop-out. It has elements of both. If you look at this, it does have some elements of poetry to it, but it also has a narrative structure and its whole. It's very unique. No other part of Scripture is like this in the form of its language. 
and therefore that tells us something about its genre. I'm not sure that it's that important to get to the bottom of whether it's poetic or narrative. Clearly, we say that the events happened, and also, also, that it's shorthand. Of course, this doesn't give us everything that happened in creation. It shortens it. It compacts it into days and into understandings that we can grasp and eventually gets us to where God really wants us to see next, which is the creation of man, which is going to be the subject of the rest of the Scriptures. It's going to be about the struggle of man to be in the image of God and yet be a sinner and how that works out. And so there is a shortening here, a foreshortening of time and space so that we can understand some big picture things. In that sense, it's poetic, but it's not to say that the things did not happen. Last question. What about those other stories that I mentioned earlier? What about the Babylonian and the Canaanite and the Egyptian stories of creation? Are those things that we should understand as rivals to the Bible? Should we try to prove that they're better or that they're worse than the Bible? How do we understand those things? Does it shake your faith to know that there are other creation narratives out there? The first general point that we need to make is that when we come to this passage of Scripture, we should expect, like in all other passages of Scripture, there to be cultural, linguistic elements that make sense in the time when it was written. That is just the way that God reveals Himself. That's what revelation means. He came into time and He spoke, or John Calvin says, He lisped to us. We have to lean in and try to understand who God is, and He uses customs and familiar things we should expect when we come to the scripture to find um, an understanding of the world that is in many ways like the understanding of the world in which it is and yet also unique and different in a a an interpretation of that time but not totally different from that time that is what revelation means and of course we have to work a little harder being removed from from time from these things to understand what it meant but in any case This is what God's Word does. It is intelligible to those who it comes to, and therefore is familiar to the customs of the time. And so this is is an important thing to realize in other parts of Scripture as well. When it comes to this idea of other gods in the Canaanite worlds and and, um, Babylonian and others, what we need to see is this. Genesis 1 is written specifically, as I've mentioned, to, to demonstrate God's without rival in those other gods. What you need to see is that polytheism, this idea that gods are everywhere, that the sun is God and moon is God and uh, there's gods in the trees and everything, was part of the air that people breathed. It is just a natural part of the ancient Near Eastern world, kind of like materialism is for us. I mean, we think that we're not being materialistic, most of us, if we avoid Starbucks for a week, you know? Like, that proves, oh, I'm above all this other stuff. While we live in these houses and we have all this stuff, like, materialism is hard for us to see. It's part of the, 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 uh, the waters that we swim in. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be challenged. It just means that we need to recognize that is true. The part of the world that they lived in is just polytheistic. There's gods everywhere. This was very unique for them to come in and say, one God is over the waters is over the sun and moon, is over the great sea monsters. Very unique. And that Bible, the Bible's uniqueness is, in fact, what we should cling to because it is. Similar to C.S. Lewis's comment about myths, 
I often wonder when people say in offhanded ways, oh, well, you know, there's lots of creation stories. Or if they're talking about the Gospels, well, there's other Gospels. There's the Apocrypha. There's other stuff outside of the New Testament that was during that time. I wonder how much of those they've read. Have you read the Enuma Elish? It is very different from the Bible. It is intentionally mythic. It intentionally captures things and makes them into beings that then war against one another. The Bible, even though it may seem fantastical to you at times, is very, for an ancient document, restrained. Its only purpose is to magnify God in this world. And of course, it deals with things of wonder and things of complexity. But it does so in almost the least fantastical way it can. So that the focus is not on understanding or events, it's on this God himself who reveals who he is. You still have questions, and so do I. When we come to a passage like this, we have so many questions. Will our questions be um, proven to be absurd, <laughs> to be, become unimportant? Certainly a mixture of the two will be the case, I'm guessing. We don't know what we don't know. And so that's true of everyone, whether you believe in God or not. You don't know what you don't know. At some point, we submit, we trust, we give our lives to something. What Christians have given their lives to is this understanding of God the Creator. His world is ordered. His world is under His dominion. He sends out His blessing into it. And that is a beautiful and compelling way to live. To understand your life in those bounds is the first thing. Feel free to ask questions, but don't leave the reality that's presented for us here. Let's pray. Father, we open our hands and our lives to you, the Creator. We trust in the order that you have put in the world. We bow to your dominion without rival. And we look at the things of this earth as the beautiful and good things that they really are. And to the extent that we struggle with any of those things, would you bring us back to your reality? This morning, with whatever questions we have in our minds, help us to separate from those questions for just a moment to recognize that you are the great king the great creator, king over all gods, king of kings, lord of lords, and we would give our life to you, open-handed, knowing that you are trustworthy. Help us to make that leap this morning into your arms, and from there, to ask our questions gently with trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.